Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about outcomes research in kidney cancer with Dr. Michaela Dinan. Dr. Dinan is an associate professor in chronic disease epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Michaela, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what exactly you do. Um, I call myself a cancer outcomes or a health services researcher. So people aren't always familiar with cancer outcomes or health services research. They tend to be more familiar with basic or clinical cancer research. Um, Basic cancer research relates to studies done in a lab with cancer cells, either in a Petri dish or in animals, uh, where researchers can directly manipulate and study cancer cells to learn more about basic biology of cancer. And then clinical cancer research refers um, to when advances in basic science are being translated into actual medical tests or treatments and are then tested in humans to see if they work. Um, My focus of research, health services research, is the part that comes after this. After a new medical treatment or diagnostic tool is found to work in clinical trials, I study how it actually gets used in the real world. You have to remember that only around 3% of patients are treated on a clinical trial and that the people who take part in clinical trials are not like the general cancer population. Um, In order to be enrolled in a clinical trial, you have to be healthy enough to qualify for participation. And every clinical trial has a set of very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria. And if you don't meet every single one, you can't participate. Um, As you can imagine, the vast majority of patients who receive treatment are not part of a clinical trial, um, so trial participants don't look like everyone else who gets treatment for their cancer in the real world. Um, Many people that are not included uh, in trials are often older adults, uh, people who have other medical conditions, or people who don't live near an academic medical center or who can't make all the extra visits that are often required, or people that don't otherwise want to participate in trials for some reason. Health services research, which is what I do, looks at how cancer treatments happen, quote, in the real world. So for example, we get to ask questions like, how is cancer treated within the entire country as opposed to just one center? Who has access to new treatments? Are the outcomes associated with these new treatments? What are the outcomes associated with these new treatments? How much does it cost to get these treatments? And are there racial or economic or other disparities in access to cancer care or the outcomes that real, real world patients experience with their cancer? Wow. I mean, that sounds so relevant because, you know, when you think about the the subpopulation, as you say, who get treated on clinical trials being so small, and yet the outcomes of those clinical trials are applied to the entire population, it seems to be particularly important to see what happens out there in the real world um, on patients who may not have looked exactly like the people who were in the trials. Yes, that's exactly right. And the other point um, about clinical trials is that they tend to be highly controlled settings, right? So patients who are participating 
in a clinical trial, not only have they gone through the litany of inclusion and exclusion criteria that I've already mentioned just to be enrolled, but once they are enrolled, they're very closely monitored and followed in terms of their treatment and their outcomes. And so that someone, you know, is keeping a very watchful eye on them. This is very different from a patient in the real world who's kind of coming into and going out of the healthcare system on a regular basis and may not being follow- be being followed as closely. So tell us a little bit more about your more recent research um, and, and what you've been doing in this realm. Sure. So um, right now, I currently have a, a study um, funded by the National Cancer Institute to look at uh, oral anti-cancer agent utilization in patients with kidney cancer. So kidney cancer, like most cancers, um, can either be early stage or, most, or more advanced stage. Uh, stage refers to how far a cancer has spread throughout a person's body. So for kidney cancer, early stage disease is confined to the kidney, whereas for advanced or metastatic disease, um, the disease has learned to travel through the bloodstream and has spread to other parts of the body, such as the lungs, bones, or brain. Um, So early stage disease is typically treated with a surgery Or if it's small enough or caught early enough in an elderly or unhealthy person, it is sometimes just observed. Um, Advanced kidney cancer for for most patients is not curable. However, the treatments for advanced kidney cancer have improved dramatically in recent years. Um, One of the biggest changes has been the development of these oral cancer treatments or pills that target kidney cancer to help shrink or delay its growth. Um, these oral cancer treatments have been allowing people to live years longer, even for people who have what traditionally would have been considered incurable kidney cancer. Um, however, these oral treatments are relatively new to kidney cancer. The first oral agents for kidney cancer became um, available or were approved by the FDA in 2005 and 2006. But with many similar treatments having been discovered since then, I think, in fact, now there are uh, the uh, first, the 10 first new drugs approved for kidney cancer in, in recent years, seven out of 10 were oral agents. Um, the interesting thing about oral anti-cancer agents is that they represent a shift from how cancer treatment used to be delivered. So as most folks know, uh, cancer treatment used to be almost always intravenous or given by injection at the, at the hospital. Uh, um, so, you know, it required patients to come to a cancer hospital or a clinic in order to receive treatment. However, oral agents are picked up by the patient from the pharmacy and taken home. And unlike intravenous treatments, these oral agents are not taken in front of a medical staff. Instead, they're taken at home by the patients. Um, when patients come to a cancer clinic and receive an intravenous chemotherapy, obviously the doctors know that they're getting the treatment. They're there. The same is not necessarily true for oral agents, however. Patients can forget to take their medications. Um, They can forget or delay refilling their prescriptions. They may not follow the instructions as to when and how to take their medications exactly, or they may choose to stop taking their medication altogether, um, particularly if they are concerned that they might be having side effects from it or if the cost of filling the prescription is too high. So my current research has been looking at the use of these oral anti-cancer agents in kidney cancer. I'm looking at things that, like who, who are receiving them. Are there any racial or economic disparities in access to these drugs? 
our patients doing as well as they did in clinical trials when taking these drugs? Because like we were just talking about, you know, when a patient, when these drugs were being first studied in a clinical trial, they were being studied in a highly controlled setting. Whereas, you know, now in the real world, patients are on their own taking them at home. And then finally, you know, I'm interested in questions like, can patients, you know, afford to continue taking these drugs uh, based on the cost? Those all sound like really interesting questions. What have you found? Sure. So um, what's interesting is that we have found that by um, 2015, a little over a third of patients uh, with uh, kidney cancer, with renal cell uh, carcinoma specifically, which is a subset of kidney cancer, uh, were receiving an oral anti-cancer agent for their advanced kidney cancer Um We know that um, previous studies have shown that Black patients have had about a 10% worse mortality associated with kidney cancer, Um, and we know that this difference has not improved since the introduction of these oral anti-cancer agents. We wanted to see if access to these drugs was a potential driver of these disparities. Uh, Surprisingly, when we looked, we didn't see any difference in access to these drugs by race, ethnicity, or any other indicators of socioeconomic status. However, uh, we did see decreased use in these oral agents in patients who were unmarried, patients who were living um, in the South, and patients who were in older age groups. And in this specific patient population, that means patients who were older than age, uh, who were kind of in the, uh, the age group, age 80 plus. Um, we were surprised to see that access to these drugs was not different by race or ethnicity. So we next wanted to see if something else could be driving disparities in kidney cancer outcomes that we know exist. Uh, So we looked at adherence to these medications. And what we observed was that about half of the patients we studied were adherent to the medication during the first three months of their treatment. So interestingly, patients who live in areas with high levels of poverty were much less likely to take their medication, um, almost half as likely as those who did not live in high poverty neighborhoods. Also, we found that if patients had to pay more than $200 a month for their medications, they were about 30% less likely to be adherent as compared to patients paying less than $200 a month for their medication. So when we take a step back from all this, what we think we are seeing is that although poorer patients are able to start these drugs because we're not seeing any difference in their initiation, um, they may not be able to continue to take them or to continue to um, take them as often as they are prescribed because we're seeing uh, decreases in the adherence to these drugs and that that could be affecting the differential outcomes that that we know exist in patients uh, with kidney cancer. So when you control for socioeconomic status and you look at the impact on race, um, did you find that that was a driver that really kind of um, mediated the relationship between race and outcomes? So, I mean, I I think that that, I think that that is a, um, a good interpretation of what we're seeing, right? So I think what you're asking is, you know, when you look at everything in the same in the same model, we're seeing that, you know, yes, th- this poverty is driving uh, this measure of adherence, but not we're not seeing a, an association with race. But I think what you're what you're getting at, which is correct, is that the you know the kind of interaction between race and poverty those are those are two very closely. 
um, they're, they're very closely tied together. So, um, so yes, that, that seeing a, a, an association in one might be um, attenuating the association in the other. So, so did you look at that? I mean, because the reason I ask is because we've seen the, a similar uh, thing uh, across um, a number of, of disease sites. I, I did a study um, just recently looking at um, breast cancer survivors and their use of um, endocrine therapy, which is also uh, an oral agent that women take for at least five years. And um, very similar to uh, your findings, um, did not find that there was necessarily a difference um, by race, which we had thought might have been a factor um, when looking at um, whether people took these medications. But we, we were looking at the question of, did you not take this medication as prescribed due to cost. And we thought that um, that um, there may be a racial disparity in terms of that. But when we looked at it, we didn't find a racial disparity, but really found a difference very much, as you say, in terms of poverty and in terms of whether or not people had insurance. And so I'm wondering if you, if you controlled for poverty um, and uh, whether we still see a difference in outcomes between um, black patients and Caucasian patients. So in our study, we did not see a difference by race, but we did see a difference by poverty. So by, so both indicators of poverty and race were in the model and mm -hmm. the race, the, the association by race, as you said, for your study was not significant yeah. where it was um, for the indicators of, of poverty level. Um, so does that make sense? So even though they were both in the model race, we did not find an association with race, but we did with poverty. And I guess the point that I was trying to make earlier is that we know, you know, that unfortunately in this country, poverty differentially impacts, um, you know, folks of, um, uh, um, you know, by race and ethnicity. Right. Well, this is such an interesting conversation, but we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about cancer prevention with my guest, Dr. Michaela Dynan. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michaela Dynan. We're talking about cancer prevention, and um, more specifically, right before the break, Michaela, you were telling us about your research looking at um, disparities that we see in outcome um, between uh, African-American patients and Caucasian patients with regards to 
kidney cancer and renal cell cancer in in particular. Now, you were looking specifically um, then at um, oral agents and found that really race was not a driver of adherence, but really poverty was. So, um, a couple of questions. Has anybody gone back and looked at the the correlation between race and outcomes that kind of drove your research to begin with and took a step back and said, uncoupling that from poverty, is it really poverty that is the driver of those outcomes or is it really um, race and the poverty bit uh, association with uh, non-adherence is a separate issue. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so the the kind of overall question, right? Like, why is there differential outcomes for patients of Black race with kidney cancer? That's a, a bigger question. And the studies that have looked at that question, I mean, some of them have certainly included um, measures of um, poverty in them, and have still found a significant association between race and outcomes as well. You're right in that our study was specifically, it was kind of a subset of that question, right? Because we were specifically interested in, okay, how are oral anti-cancer agents either contributing or not contributing to this kind of pre-observed disparity that we've seen in kidney cancer patients? So because oral anti-cancer agents were a relatively new technology in the kidney cancer space, um, we wanted to see whether or not you know, they were contributing to an, an attenuation of this disparity in outcomes or whether it was a contributing to a potential widening of these disparities in outcomes because, you know, previous research of both mine and other folks um, looking at the emergence of medical technologies and cancers can, has shown that sometimes it can go either way. Right, it can either help mitigate disparities, or sometimes um, it can help widen disparities if there's a, an additional element of decreased access for certain uh, populations. Right, you know. And the other question that I had was when we were talking earlier before the break about the whole concept of health services research. One of the really important points you made is that. You know, health services research really looks at real world outcomes as opposed to clinical trials. And clinical trials, sadly, um, do not necessarily include um, the population at large. And so when we think about clinical trials, particularly with uh, oral uh, agents for kidney cancer, did those include um, African-American uh, patients? And were the outcomes in those African-American patients equivalent to Caucasian patients? Um, I mean, could that uh, partly explain some of these disparities as well? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And again, it points to a broader issue where, you know, clinical trials in general struggle to be uh, representative of the of the general population. And there are certainly um, efforts to uh, make those clinical trials more representative of the general population. But that's something that continues uh, to be 
that, that needs to continue to be addressed. And certainly race is one area where, where there have been efforts to make them more representative. Um, I think uh, one area where uh, trials continue to struggle with their representativeness is with older populations. And I think that's something that's particularly relevant to cancer patients because a lot of cancers uh, tend to have a median uh, age of um diagnosis for the 65 plus patient population. And yet those people tend to be um, very underrepresented in trials. Um, and so, for instance, I think one, one great example of this is, you know, with a new emerging medical technology, which is relevant to kidney cancer, but also other kidney, uh, other cancers are immunotherapies or immune uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And um, again, older folks in those um, clinical trials are underrepresented. And yet there's this kind of assumption that these immune checkpoint inhibitors are going to be less toxic than um, the kind of standard or, or previously used um, cytotoxic chemotherapies. And so, you know, a lot of physicians have been operating under the assumption that the, the toxicity profiles of these um, immune oncology agents is is less than traditional therapies and so have been more willing to give these therapies uh, to older patients. And yet there's that's not really based on clinical trial data because that clinical trial data doesn't readily exist. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in and potentially looking at in the future is real world utilization of these drugs in patients who are, again, not going to be represented in, in standard trials and whose outcomes, whose toxicity profiles may look very different than what is typically seen in a trial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's so important, especially when we think about um, the fact that these drugs may affect different people differently, right? I mean, I think we, we've seen this even in the cardiology world back in the day when um, only men were included in some of the the, the uh, heart attack uh, trials. Um, and, and we realized that, you know, women's heart attacks present differently than men's heart attacks and, and drugs may affect um, different genders differently. And similarly, we, we may find that there are differences based on race and other things. And so, um, trying to tease out what really is at the root of these disparities, um, it, it really does require some, as you call it, real world um, kind of investigation. Yes. And, you know, this is all the you know, so relevant right now in the times of COVID-19, where we have this, um, you know, this very this very big need to get vaccines, you know, approved and, and treatments approved as quickly as possible. Um, but again, um, we already know that COVID-19 is affecting um, uh, uh, minority uh, racial and ethnic patients differently than it is um, white patients. We know that there's differential outcomes. Um, and yet um, the um, we are we know that there are differential outcomes and yet, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I know you said just to start over. What I get at is that, there, that, that COVID is affecting minority patients much more severely than it is 
um, Caucasian patients. What I think is really important um, thinking about COVID-19 is that, you know, the the clinical trials that were done um, really did have a reasonably robust um, representation of minority patients um, in, in the vaccine trials. And so it's led us to believe that um, the vaccines should work um, equally efficaciously for uh, minority patients, uh, for, for African-American patients, as it should for Caucasian patients, but bringing it back to kind of health services research and, and real-world science is, you know, this vaccine hesitancy and and the fact that we're seeing, um, at least by anecdote, that there may be more reluctance um, to really embrace um, the vaccine amongst uh, African-Americans who um, sadly are, are the most affected and who probably could use the vaccine the most. So, you know what? How do you how do you address that in terms of um, trying to take uh, understand um, uh, how data from clinical trials are applied in the real world? Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting conundrum. I mean, I think that in terms of uh, people's willingness to to um, to take a vaccine, um, their willingness to kind of accept uh, data from clinical trials as relevant to them. I think that that largely depends on um, the messaging, right? And, and consistent messaging. I think that part of the problem is that, you know, this is some, some of these issues are um, incredibly um, uh, entrenched and kind of systemic issues that are longstanding for some of these populations, right? And so it's not, it's not, they're not specific to necessarily one vaccine or one trial, but, you know, generations of, uh, of a healthcare system that hasn't necessarily always acted in their, in their best interest, right? So I think one, just going forward, a consistent message of, you know, representation for everyone, concern for everyone, um, I think is, is going to be really important. And I think that that's true of COVID. I think that's true of cancer, um, you know, because one of the issues that we're talking about today is is um, cancer prevention. And some of the most um, important factors for cancer prevention are, are things that have been long known um, as perhaps one area where there's, you know, not been a, a ton of um, really um, large steps and advances, but, you know, things like not smoking, things like, um, um, you know, maintaining a healthy weight, eating a healthy diet. These are kind of the standards of, of cancer prevention across the board. Um, and again, you know, it, certain, I think, messaging to different populations um, to make sure that they're receiving the message, to make sure that they understand how important it is, um, is uh, something that needs to be um, considered. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think your point about um, systemic racism and and the absolutely abhorrent tragedies that have happened in the U.S. healthcare system um, over over centuries um, really uh, that has propagated um, the lack of trust uh, for minority populations in clinical trials is going to be 
a hard mountain to climb. But I think it is so important, particularly when we think about um, not only therapeutics and, uh, uh, but as you say, about prevention, whether we're talking about COVID or whether we're talking about cancer. And, and so really thinking about all of the ways that we can prevent cancer, February being Cancer Prevention Month, have we seen any impact in terms of really driving forward some of those behaviors, um, some of those primary prevention techniques that all of us know about in terms of cancer prevention? Um, are we are we making a dent? I mean, I I, th- I think so. Yes, there's a lot. You know, there's a long there's a long way to go, um, and and I think there's a lot more to be done in kind of just those those primary areas uh, that that you mentioned. But um, you know, for a lot of cancers, we do see that the incidence of cancer is going down. Not for all of them, but but you know, for for some of them, um, you know, smoking related cancers to some extent. I mean, it kind of fluctuates a little bit, but um, for sure, we're seeing some improvements there. Uh, one of the one of the area one of the easiest things to do for younger boys and girls is to make sure that they receive their HPV vaccinations, right, as a terms of cancer prevention. And, and there certainly have, since the um, since the HPV vaccination has um, come on the scene, we've certainly seen decreases in HPV-related cancers associated with utilization of that vaccine. Um, so, and then the other area is that, you know, we, we're seeing this kind of um, increase in the number of cancer survivors. So even folks who are, who are unfortunate to receive um, a diagnosis of cancer, uh, survival for many cancers is going up as well. And I think some of that, you know, a lot of that's, you know, attributable to these advances in diagnostic or treatment technologies, um, but to some extent as well, um, you know, people trying to you know, reduce or quit smoking, um, eat healthier diets, um, maintaining a healthy body weight, all of these things are, are only going to help. Dr. Michaela Dinan is an associate professor in chronic disease epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.